Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.N. has called for an investigation into the assassination of Daria Dugina as Russia calls out the U.S. for their lackluster response. Also, Russian investigators have named a member of a Ukrainian Nazi group as the killer and a Ukrainian envoy calls for Russia genocide. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we've got Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray McGovern, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. The Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, accused Kiev's secret services of carrying out the car bombing murder of Russian journalist Daria Dugina, the 29-year-old daughter of nationalist philosopher Alexander Dugin. You know, one of the things that I find concerning, Ray, and I'm sure you will, too, we recently spoke to Scott Ritter, is that the Ukrainians maintain, you know, a couple of different lists of so-called enemies of the state, one of which you happen to be on, Ray. And Scott Ritter talked about this earlier this week and said, you know, this is even greater concern for me and people on this list. Your thoughts on all of this stuff, Ray McGovern. Well, first, uh, I'm not very worried about being assassinated right now, but check with me next week. (laughs) Uh, This is really getting out of hand. Uh, You know, it used to be only the Israelis and the United States and the Brits that used to assassinate people. And now we have the Ukrainians uh, following that good example. Uh, Suffice it to say that the FSB uh, apparently had this lady uh, tracked for a while. Uh, A lingering question for me is, my God, (laughs) if they were tracking her that closely, why is it? that they weren't able to prevent this. But be that as it may, uh, suffice it to say, there's a mixed record for the FSB. Uh, They were following her very closely, but failed to prevent this from happening. Now, part of it, of course, uh, has to do with uh, Dabina herself. Uh, Was she really uh, targeted or was it her her dad? In any case, it looks like the Ukrainian service and particularly the Azov Battalion folks uh, are found, at least by the Russians, to be guilty of this. Now, the real question, of course, uh, becomes what's going to happen now? Uh, <laughs> well, how are the Russians going to react to this? Well, they'll try to extradite her from Estonia. Good luck with that. Uh, will they do more? Well, yeah, they'll do more. Um, the gamut uh, or the, the, the range of action, the, the spectrum that they have is rather long, uh, really excited people are talking about the beginning of World War One, <laughs> and talking about the uh, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand by Prince Chip and saying, whoa, there was an assassination uh, there can lead to war. Well, I don't think that's in the in the in prospect. What I think is that the Russians will uh, be, be careful Uh, They have now, as I was uh, listening just now to Ambassador uh, Nebenzia at the UN, they are not only talking about Zaporozhye, the nuclear plant there, but they're talking about the assassination. And they will raise this in diplomatic circles. Uh, They'll probably do more. 
but it's not going to be World War III. This is one of those pinpricks which the Russians are are suffering as an inevitable result of, of war on Ukraine. And uh, they're not going to be provoked by either the Ukrainian secret services or the U.S. secret services. So what I would expect is that perhaps a tit for tat, uh, perhaps a, a Ukrainian uh, intelligence official will meet an untimely end. But I don't I don't think that the Russians will be uh, cajoled into reacting in a more forceful method especially since they seem to be winning, winning big. Uh, the real problem is that no one who reads the New York Times or listens to the State Department realizes that. And I'd like to discuss that later on, perhaps. Talk about it in, in the context of the U.S. narrative that Alexander Dugan is Putin's brain, uh, that he's the be a part of the mastermind behind what's going on in Ukraine. All of these kinds of district, uh, descriptions of him when I've come to understand that he's never talked to Putin, he's never met the man, just the way that the West is spinning this. Well, the propaganda is, as usual, effusive but wrong. He had no influence on Putin, and particularly within the last five or six years, uh, he made the mistake on open air TV uh, to say, we got to ubit, ubit, ubit the Ukrainians. Well, that means kill, 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 all right? <laughs> That's not Putin's policy. He wants to embrace them into the fold, the ones that are willing to uh, uh, to cease what's being happening to the Russian speakers in Ukraine. So that was the first thing. Dugin is um, is pretty much out of any influence and has been for quite some time. When I talk about the narrative, <clears throat> you know, I happen to, I don't watch TV, but my wife said, come, 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 Ray. So this General Ben Hodges, who used to be commander in chief of all US forces in Europe, okay? He's talking to, what's her name? Uh, Christina Aman, Amanpour. And he's saying on CNN, ah, the Ukrainians are going to drive the Russians back to the pre-February 24 borders eh, this fall for sure. Now, my God, <laughs> if that's what Petraeus and other people are telling this administration and gullible people like Sullivan and Blinken, my God, nothing farther from the truth. The Russians have the upper hand here. And my fear is that, uh, you know, over the over the the term of a f couple of months, it become increasingly clear that uh, Americans will say, say, well, we were lied to unless, unless Biden and his uh, courtiers uh, decide to do something really, really, really dangerous to, quote, retaliate for the inevitable Russian victory as they push toward the, the Dnieper River and maybe even towards uh, Moldova. You know, I also, Ray, I think that these types of things, I, I agree with you, and, I, and, and, and part of this, I think, is based on um, China showing a certain level of restraint after the Pelosi visit. And, you know, I've been arguing, I think Russia and China are rec now recognize there will be multiple provo provocations, significant provocations, and, and likely, and, and I think they've made a decision that they're not going to, um, they're not going to respond in the way that the neocons would have them respond. I think that they're going to um, let this thing play itself out. Your thoughts? Well, I think you're right in terms of uh, them being smart enough not to rise to the bait. 
the important new reality being that they are allied for all intents and purposes, the Russians and the Chinese together over the long haul. Uh, if they stay allied, and there's every indication they will, they will they will be able to plan for the long haul and not respond to these provocations. On the other hand, the U.S. is committed publicly, uh, White House and the Defense Department, to sending warships into the Taiwan Strait, as they say, quote, in the coming weeks, end quote. Now, my friends tell me, well, don't worry about it, Ray. China doesn't want a war. <laughs> well, I'm not worried. I mean, I know that China doesn't want a war. The question is, what will they do to these warships? China has at one point, a couple of months, a month ago, I think, just said, well, the Taiwan Strait, you know, that's our territorial waters. And, you know, they could do lots of stuff uh, besides interdicting uh, the passage of these of these warships. They could harass the hell out of them. They could have fishing boats going into them and all kinds of stuff in that strait. And, you know, I may be the only guy out there saying this, but I think the Chinese will feel commit, co committed to do that if if Biden is persuaded to do this risky action. And so what I'm trying to persuade people that I know in Washington is, look, before the before the Chinese throw down the gauntlet and say, don't come into these waters publicly, uh, you know, tell them not to do that just now, just like you did in April of last year when you turned around two heavily laden naval destroyers on their way into the Black Sea. Putin said, turn them around, and you turn them around, Mr. Biden. So there's precedent for this. There is some uh, savoir-faire in Washington, but you know, it's not in, in plentiful supply. You've got to make this decision. I'm really afraid of what will happen if and when those warships go in there, because China is not alone here. Again, I would expect the Russians to do something rather dramatic on the Western Front if that happens. UN calls for probe into the uh, Dugan's daughter's uh, killing. And what do you think, does the UN, does their rhetoric factor into this at all, or is that just, just empty? Well, I think I see that as a facade, uh, something the UN felt it, it should do. Uh, there may be good workers in the UN who want to, would want to follow through on this, but the, the leadership is totally under the domination of the United States. Matter of fact, the delay in sending inspectors, IAEA inspectors, uh, to, uh, to look at the Zaporozhye incidents, uh, that, you know, Nebezhnev has just said at the UN, look, we've been accused of delaying that. We asked for them back in June. It was the Ukraine and others who delayed the appearance of these IAEA, that's the International uh, IA. Well, it's the, 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 uh, the UN's uh, inspection regime, okay? So they're, they're supposed to be there now or close to now. I hope they get there on time because these Azov people are purely crazy. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't mind putting a dent in those uh, cooling, cooling pools, which are the real target of a lot of this because the reactor itself is so heavily, heavily fortified. Well, cooling pools are really important, too.
And uh, Ray, in looking at this, do you think that um, basically what we're seeing now is, you know, a lot of people are predicting that the the Russians in all likelihood will within three, four weeks have completed their sweep of the Donbass region. And effectively at that point, there's only pockets of resistance in, in, in say, Odessa, Kharkov, et cetera, like that, that the, the West is trying to calculate how they're going to deal without, with that because they've been telling their people, you know, hey, the Russians, they're, they're about to lose any day. In fact, Crimea is going to fall and the Azov Battalion is uh, at, the, at Red Square ready to run the, the Azov flag up at any minute that they concern is they may be up to no good because they can't face that reality. Well, uh, you're right. Uh, even more important is the fact that the midterm elections are coming up in November. This is a very dicey period. There is this huge disconnect between what the American people have been led to believe, as I tried to uh, say, oh, yeah, well, Hodges, General Hodges said, oh, yeah, well, we'll clean, it, clean the Russians out uh, to pre-February 24 uh, frontiers. Um, by this fall. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. I couldn't believe I was watching this guy say this. And so there's this disconnect. And when this disconnect becomes apparent, and if it does before the midterm elections, that's when Biden has to decide whether he raises the ante. That's when he decides whether he gives even uh, greater, greater range ballistic missiles to these folks or not. And I, I fear for that because uh, that would escalate in a new way and uh, put Russian targets, uh, including that bridge connecting Russia proper with Crimea under, you know, as targets for whatever armaments the U.S. and NATO decide to give the Ukrainians. Ray McGovern is a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Go to RayMcGovern.com for all of his information, including his appearances, right here on Radio Sputnik. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The German Air Force is joining U.S. vassals for a military exercise in the Pacific aimed at intimidation techniques towards China and North Korea. Joining us now to discuss this and more is K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist and writer. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Now, KJ, for some reason, this just gives me the creeps coming out of my mouth, but I'm going to say, read uh, the beginning of this article from Defense Connect. Defense Connect. Luftwaffe makes first appearance at exercise Pitch Black. A contingent from the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, is scheduled to arrive in Australia mid-August for the exercise with more than 200 personnel taking part in the German military's rapid Pacific deployment. Gee, you know, every time I think of Luftwaffe, I think of the World War II movies, I think of the Crooked Cross, and I think of all kind of bad things happening, and it looks like they're up to the same um, activities. Your thoughts, KJ, no. 
Yes, I think you're absolutely right. First, you know, the connotation that the former Nazi air force is joining with uh, Japan and the other Axis powers, oh, you know, in some kind of uh, war game is, you know, is, is frightening. But there's some specifics about this which are very interesting to watch. If you look at the flight pattern that they took, they did 200 aerial refuelings. Uh, as they uh, transitioned into uh, into the Pacific. And so there's a lot of practice for some very, very intensive air combat. And that is literally what they will be rehearsing. They will be rehearsing uh, aerial combat, dogfights um, in the Pacific. And, you know, this is not common because, you know, previously, you know, the, the Taliban or, you know, uh, other Iraq does not have an air force to speak of. So uh, previous exercises didn't really concentrate on this. But this is directly uh, oriented towards uh, aerial combat with uh, peer uh, enemies or, uh, you know, peer, uh, peer competitors. Uh, and then the third piece is they flew right over the Malacca Straits, which we know from, you know, all the studies that that's going to be a key choke point uh, uh, in which to, you know, shut off China's oil and trade. So very, very dangerous. Uh, very, very ominous, and it comes in the midst of a whole bunch of other exercises that look like everything is escalating. It's interesting when you look at the map and you you think of the German Luftwaffe, they're not flying over the North Sea, they're not flying over the Baltic Sea, they're not flying over the North Atlantic or the Norwegian Sea, They're, they're all the way in the Pacific. And when you read this article, we want to demonstrate we can be in Asia within a day, according to this chief of the German Air Force. And then he says the Indo-Pacific is of great importance to Germany. We share the same values with many partners in the region and defending those values in a case of a war emergency is something that needs to be practiced. I mean, they're going a real, 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 to your point, 20 air refueling. They're going a long way to get into a fight. Absolutely. And uh, it's not 20, it's 200 air refueling. So they're really, really working, you know, at, at, at a high pitch to, uh, you know, to prepare. And you're absolutely correct. You know, what they call about, quote unquote, defending, uh, you know, the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific. First, the Indo-Pacific is a germ, is a term that the Germans invented uh, during their colonial period. It's a tradition we refer to it as the Asia-Pacific. So, you know, once again, everything comes into a circle. But the, the whole notion that they're defending anything other than Western imperialism is laughable on the face of it. Uh, two th- things I'll throw, uh, I, I don't want to get your, your your comment on. Number one, for all of this, they're making up, oh, we're doing this and blah, 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 blah. And I read it. They're sending six six fighter planes, six fighter planes. So the reality of it is this, you know, in modern day peer-to-peer warfare, ah, they last five minutes. You know what I mean? In reality out there, they wouldn't be there long, but they're sending six. So it's like they're not really sending like some major contingent. And here's the other part of it. And they're going to go home to this dystopian uh, zombie apocalypse that is now Germany. Hey, we're going to send some people over to confront China. What do you got at home? Well, we don't have food and we're kind of out of, uh, you know, all of the things that normal people need. But we're going over to I mean, the whole thing is a, is it's farcical to me. It's kind of cold when they get home. Yeah, how no about heat. that? Yeah, they better go to a, a warm area because they got no heat when they get home. KJ. 
Well, yeah, you're absolutely correct. You know, Hanover has said no longer are we supporting any hot public showers. We'll no longer have hot water in public restrooms. Uh, and other, you know, regions have said, you know, we, we, we have hacked the shower. Everybody, you know, do a dry bath, no water, or just use a washcloth. So, you know, Europe is not doing well. And yes, there is an element of this which is symbolic. And I think that symbolism is actually very dangerous. The Luftwaffe, you know, was the arm of, you know, the Nazi war machine. And so I think that symbolism is not not trivial. But the fact is that it's a coordination, you know, of a, a dozen uh, NATO or uh, NATO uh, quasi-NATO allies that are coordinating. You know, 70 planes will be preparing for aerial combat. So it's not the simple fact of Germany, but that it is one of a coalition of the rather unwilling uh, that is being uh that is rehearsing or practicing interoperability along with, you know, their, not simply their six Typhoon fighters, but their three aerial refueling tankers uh, and a large uh, air transport uh, aircraft. It's, it's the synergy of that, which I see as threatening. The Department of Defense has released a statement, U.S., Republic of Korea, and Japan participate in missile, missile defense exercise in Hawaii. Uh, they participated in this, in a missile warning and ballistic missile search and tracking exercise during the multinational Pacific Dragon exercise. They seem to be practicing a lot of varying components of warfare and conflict with a number of different parties. And I can't see them doing this simply because they don't have anything better to do. This really strikes me as posturing, projection, and possible warfare. Yes, I see it as uh, preparation for war, potential war in um, Northeast Asia uh, and with Japan, Korea, and the United States, what I call the Jackus Alliance. This is what I refer to as a kind of a three eyes uh that they've made, uh, as opposed to the five eyes, the three eyes kind of intelligence sharing agreement, which they're trying to finally, you know, codify, but it already exists in the trilateral information sharing agreement. And this is, once again, a kind of a uh, you know, off the shelf, ready to go, a coordinated missile tracking drill, which has nothing to do with North Korea. It has to do with China. That is, it's a preparation for war, a preparation for missile-based long-range standoff war with China, which is one of the key elements of U.S. battle doctrine or war doctrine against China. That is to say, the third offset is about long-range standoff, subsurface, and dispersed warfare or dispersion warfare. This is also why Japan wants to place a thousand cruise missiles on 200 islands surrounding China. And in reading that, I also read that they said they wanted to do that, but they don't actually have the missiles to do that. So that's interesting. But here's the other thing I think, and, and, and I've been looking at it like this too. The provocations, they are, you know, the, the, the Pelosi move, et cetera. I think that what I've seen is that there's they're going to be, you know, continuing and escalating provocations. I, I think at this point, after watching what happened with Taiwan, I don't think that China's going to, you know, bite the hook. I don't think they're going to act on these provocations. And I, I think this is kind of a waiting game going on where the U.S. does the provocations, waiting for China to do something to kind of trip a wire so there can be a military conflict. That China's not 
has no plan to do that in the foreseeable future. And they're kind of waiting, working in other areas, diplomatically around the world, economically, things like that, figuring that we're going to hold off on this thing and we're going to work in other arenas. Uh, your thoughts? Yes, I think you're you're largely correct. I mean, China does not want war. It hasn't been at war. It hasn't fired a bullet since 1979 in, you know, in any meaningful combat. So they don't want war. They want peaceful, win-win, mutually supportive relationships with the rest of the world, including the United States. It's the U.S. that wants to provoke war because it sees that it's Hegemony is fading and that the provocation to war is a way of, you know, kind of uh, clearing the board and its last best chance at maintaining some kind of hegemony by delegitimating and creating rallying, you know, um, you know, some kind of universal condemnation against China. That's why they're trying to provoke war. China's approach is a little bit like Tai Chi Chuan. Tai Chi Chuan is you use the force of the other person against you. But the key element is that you maintain your balance. And that's what China is trying to do. It's trying to maintain its balance as it is constantly pestered and buzzed and, uh, you know, uh, fainted at uh, by the United States. Uh, will China stir? Will it move? You know, people have said that China is not a dragon or a tiger. It's like a panda. It's, you know, it is uh, pacifist, vegetarian, easygoing. But if but there is a limit. And if you go past a certain point, even a panda will uh, respond, uh, you know, aggressively. In terms of maintaining that balance, does the ongoing development of the relationship with North Korea put another leg on the stool? Uh, I think so, yes. I mean, North Korea is uh, China's longest, oldest, uh, you know, treaty ally, and they have a mutual defense treaty. And so North Korea, I think, gives a little bit extra heft uh, to China's position in uh, Northeast Asia. Uh, and, you know, as they are tied in history and in blood as, you know, really the co uh, uh, you know, the, the, the co-partners uh, co of the revolution. The, China, the Koreans are actually involved in the uh, Chinese uh, civil war and the, uh, the people's revolution. And so they see themselves intricately connected. Uh, all of this kind of reestablishing, reaffirming of relations, I think, simply just gives more ballast and weight to that uh, balance that China is trying to find. You know, I think another thing of consequence, the U.S. media never uh, never really shows this stuff, but there have been protests in Taiwan. There have been protests in Korea. The Korean president's numbers are, you know, lower than a, as they would say in the old West, lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. The um, support for this stuff that the U.S. is doing in the Asia-Pacific region, even in the countries that are ostensible allies, the support for this destabilization does not exist. And in time, it could um, serve to push some of the leaders of, this of these countries out of power. It could serve to really hurt the U.S.'s hegemonic interest in different ways. KJ. You're absolutely correct. And just going on South Korea alone, we can recall that there was Im Myung-bak, President, former President Im Myung-bak, former President Park Geun-hye, who were both uh, extremely U.S. allied. Im Myung-bak was almost brought down by, uh, you know, mass protest. Park Geun-hye was brought down by mass protest. And so you're absolutely correct that the majority of people in these countries 
the people on the ground do not support militarism. They do not support this U.S. escalation to war. They do not support this belligerent confrontation. Uh, KCTU recently organized um, a demonstration in South Korea, which had uh, about 10,000 people on the streets. Uh, uh, you know, demanding that South Korea break ties, military ties with the United States. So there's a lot of resistance and it's possible, but, um, you know, time will tell how effective that is. We've been talking with K.J. No. He's a peace activist, writer, and a friend of the show. Thanks a lot, K.J. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.K. has experienced its biggest drop in GDP in 300 years. Yeah, you heard that right, 300 years. Also, Europe's population may drop in half, and Bulgaria's energy minister argues that negotiations with Gazprom are inevitable. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Dr. David Walalu. Dr. Walalu is an international geopolitical consultant. He's also a veteran and author of a very pertinent book, The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. How prophetic was that book? Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Pleasure to be with you, Galen. The British economy contracted by 11% in 2020, its largest drop in 300 years. Revised data from the UK Office for National Statistics showed on Monday. The previous reading had been a 9.3% decline. This happens to be the biggest drop since the ONS began keeping records and the UK's largest GDP slump since 1709, the year of the Great Frost. Well, Dr. Walalu, they may have taken a big hit during the old COVID, but I have a funny feeling this year ain't going to be so pretty either. Dr. David Walalu, your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely correct, Galen. And your stats or your the, the, uh, the announcement of the statement is as accurate as it can be. I checked uh, very different sources to ensure that that number was right, and it was since 1709. And usually there is now the conversation, uh, interesting enough, is I had a conversation last week with someone in London, and so he, what he told me was that the government is not disclosing the full picture of how bad, economically speaking, UK is. And of course, some say, well, the COVID is part of it, but that's not the whole picture. When you add into that now, Britain is sending more money more weapons at the expense of the citizens in in the United Kingdom, given how inflation is rising, and it keeps rising, given now the shortages in energy and the bills of energy are rising to the roof. All the while, the Bank of England is intending to raise interest rates. So you can just see where things are headed. And things are also only going to get worse. You mentioned energy. Brits to fire up wood stoves to avoid freezing this winter. Suppliers of firewood project sales to soar by a fifth during the upcoming winter as millions of households adopt to fire up wood stoves to help cope with soaring energy bills. And a lot of this is really due not to economic or 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 just a change in weather patterns, it's 
British policy following the United States down this down this anti-Russian rabbit hole, and they're going to find themselves short when it comes time to turn that heat up. Oh, you're absolutely correct, Walmart. I mean, the idea of uh, it's so I, I always find it very uh, interesting, but at the same time so uh, uh, weird that most of the Western governments always tends to shift the blame away from their own failed policies. We have it right here in, at home in the United States. So UK is no different. It was the failed policies of Boris Johnson. It was the failed policies of the central bank. It was the failed policies of the Europe as a whole, thinking that, okay, we're going to just follow the path, whatever the U.S. says we're going to go, then we'll follow blindly, without thinking in terms of how this is going to impact the average citizen. And now you are witnessing with the skyrocketing uh, prices in energy, uh, there is no way they're going to survive the winter. And this explains why uh, I think before he left the office, Boris Johnson made the trip specifically to Saudi Arabia. And the trip was to ask the Saudis to beg, and I'm going to use the term, to beg for oil from the Saudi Arabia to be shipped to England. And the Saudis said, sorry, we can't do it now because the production is not where it needs to be. So UK is seeing the same outcome other European Union countries, especially Germany. As a matter of fact, even France right now, this morning, France now is cutting the electricity uh, as far as because they don't have enough to hold them till the winter. So the usage of electricity is being now reduced by orders of the government. So you can just see where Europe is headed uh, in, the, uh, in the next few months uh, between now and the end of the year. And see, Dr. Walalu, even the talk of firewood for heating is a bit misleading. Look, you know, if you go out to the English countryside, oh, it's beautiful and there's green and there's beautiful glens and houses, probably some leprechauns running around, right? And people can have wood stoves, but Europe is is dominated by these gigantic cities, you know, London, Paris, these old Rome, gigantic cities that have been literally growing for a thousand years. You're not going to have wood stoves in the high rises of these gigantic cities where all the people are packed. You have to have some form of gas and or electric. And when they're unable to do that, you're looking at a circumstance where people could literally freeze to death. And I think just to add this in, with the Bulgaria energy minister saying Gazprom talks are inevitable, I think what he's really saying is it is inevitable that we're going to have to go to Russia sometime and say we need a deal because otherwise our people, like their toes are going to fall off from frostbite and that's not going to be a good thing. Dr. Walalu. Well, indeed, because they are seeing what's taking place right now in the UK. They're seeing what's taking place in Germany. They're seeing what's taking place in Italy. And, and, and in the case of Bulgaria, with the, uh, the new government, which came to power, I believe, in uh, the end of July or the beginning of August, somewhere around that time. So the interim government, uh, which was appointed at the time by uh, President Roman Radev, they, they kind of realized, wait a minute, let's not just follow the EU blindly here for whatever they say. It's the same approach Hungary did when Orban decided to challenge the EU. And Bulgaria is thinking of it in terms of, we better cut a deal with the Russians because we will not survive without the Russian gas. Because like I said last time, and I usually do not like to beat the dead horse here, but I'm going to repeat it. Europe cannot manage economically without Russia's gas. 
That's the bottom line to it. And they are about to witness in uh, one by one for the countries that decided to sort of take stand, whatever that is, they're going to find out. And once the social upheaval starts to emerge, when the population becomes so upset, they're going to see what the outcome, politically speaking, is going to be. So Bulgaria is doing the right thing. And Bulgaria's contract with Gazprom expires at the end of this year, but Russia halted deliveries in in late April after the previous pro-Western government refused Gazprom's demand to pay in rubles. And now they say, obviously, we will have to hold negotiations, but those will be very difficult and hard. I don't think they'll be difficult and hard between Bulgaria and, and Russia if the United States stays out of it. But once the United <laughs> States starts to pressure Bulgaria, that's where the difficulty lies. Yeah. Well, this is much more than just Bulgaria, Wilmer. This becomes now the question about the whole Europe. Did Europe oh, absolutely. Sort of absolutely. Yeah. Did it mess up the opportunity for them to I've always said this and I will keep saying it. Europe is like the child that never grows up. Does not want to grow up, you know, because politically it's so weak and Europe has no foreign policy. So you got now countries within Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, they are realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are we following what the Europeans says? Why are we following what the Americans are saying? Let's look after our own interests. So those negotiations that you mentioned, yeah, they are not going to be hard if it's only Bulgaria and Russia are negotiating. And I am sure if they are, they're going to reach an agreement by which both parties will win. It's a win-win situation for both. Let me say something. Uh, Let me ask you this, though. You know, and I'm just throw this. This is the kind of person I am. I'm a very nice, easygoing kind of person. I don't like a lot of problems. But when somebody crosses me, I'm done with them. And once I'm done with them, I don't want anything to do with them anymore, right? What happens if Europe says, you know, things are kind of cold and hungry around these places. Let's go talk to Russia. Hey, Russia, can we make a deal? And Russia's like Garland. And Russia says, wait a minute, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You said you hated us. You were going to war on us. We were going to starve to death. You were going to destroy us with all that. Forget it. The answer is no. What happens if Russia ends up like me and just says, I know you need a deal and you want a deal, but though that dog don't hunt no more. Sorry, we're doing business in another part of the world. Our contracts are over. We ain't renewing them. I see that as a possibility. And what in the heck does Europe do then? Which is a big, big question mark as to what <laughs> Europe will be doing by then. Because that's reality. For in the case of Russia, they're realizing now if they can just expand and, 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 and just indulge me for a second here. If they can just expand the BRICS to become a BRICS plus by adding four or five emerging economies, Russia will be in well-positioned to just manage between three or four of those members, because they have, just between India and China, you get 30% of the world population, and you add two more countries, like Iran, like Argentina, or Brazil, or Brazil already a member, you can just see, Russia will be saying, sure, we are not going to renew the contract in Europe, but we do have other markets, and by the way, we're going to be paid in rubles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> forget about the dollar, forget about the SWIFT. So that is a possible uh, outcome, Garland, except that in my personal opinion, again, knowing what I know about Putin from my own research, 
He's a geopolitical calculator. So he's going to have to think in terms of a long term, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. long strategy. And to him will be, if I can secure cooperation with Eastern Europe, all of it, forget about France, forget about Germany and all that, then he will be fine with that. Mind you that last week on Friday, which was not reported, by the way, a phone call was made from Paris by uh, Macron to Putin. Talking about some ways of figuring out a solution to the conflict. So why all of a sudden Macron is reaching out to Putin? And that gives you an answer right there. Europe's population could have, as birth rates plummet, soaring house prices in Europe have led to people putting off marriage and starting a family to a later period in their life than used to be in the case as couples are forced to save for longer to buy family homes. So this current inflation and economic problem is now making its way into other factors of culture and society. Well, indeed, uh, Walmart, because uh, there is always, your listeners need to know one thing, there's always a link between demographics, okay, and economics. Those, they are like uh, mutually exclusive, shall we say. And the geopolitical decisions are usually sometimes behind the scenes driven by the demographics also. Europe is running to this issue mainly in Germany, in Italy, Portugal, Spain, and Greece. Those are the population is aging there. And the younger uh, generation there are not rushing into marriage and having families. So you're absolutely correct. Within the next decade or so, we're going to see, that's why we call it the old continent because it's just going to be now an aging society over there. And given what the inflation is going, you know, there is no good end for Europe as we speak. I just thought of two things there. Number one, if you're going through difficult times, young families are going to say, I'm not good. I can't afford another mouth to feed. But additionally, as the population gets older, you got a population full of 65, 70 year old people. You don't have the workforce to create the funds necessary for the social safety net to take care of your seniors and their population falls apart. And also their social safety net programs, their retirement programs oh, in yeah. those countries have taken huge hits, huge hits. Yeah, and there are two countries, guys, you can think of. Your listener needs to know. There's two countries as an example. is Japan and Canada. Japan now is paving the way for the, uh, they call it merciless uh, death. So for to check out when you are an old, because the population is getting so old. In Canada, Canada is going to be running into a problem within a decade or 15 years, financially speaking, because it will not have enough funds in its retirement for, for the population there. So, and the Canadians are wondering why is the country sending so many millions of dollars to other countries and support when they have their own problem there to deal with? So, Europe, I see it's going the same direction. We've been talking with Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, veteran, and author of The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics Remaking the Global Order. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. One year after a deadly earthquake, Haitians feel abandoned by the international community. Also, Haitian deportees are facing wretched conditions. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Jamima Pierre. Dr. Pierre is an associate professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California. Dr. Pierre, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks so much for having me. The Washington Post says uh, Gismet Duvalier spent six years building a house for his family in Corail, a remote, a remote community on the coast of Haiti's southwest peninsula. Then last August, a powerful earthquake struck, grinding its hard cro- concrete walls, his life work, into rubble. Duvalier later on in an article says pretty clearly, the state has abandoned us. Your thoughts, Dr. Pierre? Well, uh, this is, you know, the, the, the problems in Haiti are mounting problems all point to one cause, which is the, the crisis of imperialism in Haiti. Haiti is under a foreign occupation um, that uh, of a group of countries, particularly the core group um, and the U.N. Uh, mission there that's still there, that's been there since 2004, that with the U.S., France and Canada imposed a, a, a prime minister. There's no government. There hasn't been elections. Um, and so, of course, when you have a complete destruction of the state structures, a complete lack of sovereignty um, and, and a free for all, really, that's what Haiti is for the, the, the Western business elite. Then, of course, everything, the people who are the, it's the people who will suffer. So that's really what's happening. And I think, you know, the Washington Post is completely disingenuous, right, because they only pro, um, they give stories about Haiti. Um, when there's some kind of tragedy or something, but they never contextualize the larger picture. And and the 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 the, the problem is, a group a group most of the money that goes to Haiti. If we remember what happened to the after the earthquake in 2010, most of the money that these people say that they raise end up going back into the pockets of the businesses from their countries. Which is why, even though Haiti has all these problems, if you go on a plane to Haiti, if you fly out of Miami, you'll see it's filled with all these primarily white businessmen going in to make money off of the country. So that's really what the problem is. All these problems stem from the fact that we've had, uh, we have a foreign occupation in, in the country that's really making hard difficult for people. But Dr. Pierre, according to the Washington Post, this is a problem by spiraling gang violence in the capital, police instability, I'm sorry, political instability, global economic slowdown, donor fatigue, and the emergence of other crises around the world to command more attention. Now, in in all seriousness, the spiraling gang violence funded by and armed by outside sources, political instability created by outside sources, uh, donor fatigue because money was stolen by inside sources. Uh, So to your point, they touch on some very, very superficial causes and they don't get to the crux of the issue. Which is perfect, right? Which is perfect when when your government um, and the Washington Post is not my site to go to, my go to <laughs> site for news. Let's get that straight, right? Or nor the New York Times, because, you know, these are, uh, you know, mouthpieces of the government. But when you are the newspaper um, representing a, a, an elite class of a country, that's the cause of all this brutality throughout the world. Of course, you're going to write this, you know, and, and with Haiti, it's, 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 it's an acute problem because what happens is you have these Western governments go in. 
take out our president uh, and elect a popularly elected president. Because I always have to rem- remind people, in 2004, the U.S. Marines landed at Aristide's house, put him on a plane, and flew him and his family to Africa. You take out the government, you bring in an occupation force, you destroy the state, you don't allow you know, parliamentary elections, there's no, there are no elected officials. You destroy the state and then you install a puppet government, a right-wing one, um, with PHTK, with Michel Martelly, Jovenel Moïse, and you create this mess. And then you create this vacuum that opens up the space for businesses, you know, foreign businesses to come in and basically steal land. Uh, you know, my mother was just in Haiti and she says, you know, what people are saying in the countryside is that you'll have these foreigners come in with a paper that says they own their land and they can just take it. Or you have people fracking right on the waters outside, you know, uh, on the coast of southern Haiti. And so when you create this, you allow this to happen. You allow a vacuum. But at the same time, you turn around and say, well, these black people cannot control themselves. Right. And look at them. They're killing each other. They're shooting each other. And that's why we have a problem, as opposed to really taking responsibility for really what they're behind. And the Washington Temple should take responsibility because it's been terrible in terms of its reporting in Haiti and not presenting the right, the, 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 the right, um, the right analysis. And but also constantly asking for armed intervention in Haiti, you know, military intervention. That's what the Washington Post did last month. And so it has no right to say anything about Haiti at this point, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, and here's a perfect example. In this Post article, they 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 say rising gang violence and political instability that worsened with the still unsolved assassination in July 2021 of President Jovenel Moisi. Well... You know, can you imagine if the president of the United States was killed and we found out that the plot was hatched in Moscow? Would they simply say, well, just some random people in Moscow? The fact of the matter is the evidence is clear that the plot was hatched in Miami. People involved were trained by U.S. drug intervention people in Bogota. And the guy who's president right now was it's speaking to the killers on the night that they did the crime. And and Washington Post just says, oh, we have no clue who was involved in this thing. It's unsolved. That's that's exactly it. And, and you know, the, the, the Western media here is completely disingenuous because even at the end, you're absolutely right, because, you know, the prime minister is was handpicked by the U.S. government and the core group of the, you know, that runs the country. And he was not, he's not elected. No one likes him, which is why everybody's protesting, because he's a tool of the Westerners and and he's a puppet um, as part of public government and no one likes him. But the other thing about, if you read this article further, it's so interesting. It's like international agencies set aside more than $13 billion, but face criticism for failing to coordinate with local officials. And so basically you're saying, People like people are afraid. People are questioning how funds were used, but you don't call out these Western NGOs for stealing all of that thirteen billion dollars, right? So the problem is not the fact that the thirteen billion dollars were stolen by Western NGOs and government officials. It's 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 the Haitians that's the, that's the problem. And to me, there's you know when it comes to Haiti, there's a deep, deep, deep racism in covering in covering um, 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 what's going on there that we cannot that none of these Western presses can get away from. There's a, a piece in Haiti Liberté, General Revolt and Popular Mobilization. Faced with growing insecurity, unemployment, soaring prices of basic necessities, and the persistence of the scarcity of fuel, the political party Petit Dessalines, in a press conference, announced for a general uprising 
no doubt symbolic in the streets of the city of Cap Haitien for the purpose of demanding the departure of gang power to Ariel Henry. What's going here on the ground? Is this more symbolic than than real? Well, I think there, there's definitely a general mobilization going on. Um, you know, I, 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 I work indirectly with uh, Moliga, which is a, a, a grassroots group um, out of the, the, the sector populaire that they call them, you know, the popular sectors in Haiti that, that, that had mobilizations against, it is insecurity, high gas prices, and so on. Um, Moïse, uh, you know, the Piti Desali uh, uh, party, the reason I think ICD Belte um, wrote it this way is because uh, they're opportunists, right? Um, the, the guy, the former senator, northern senator Moïse Jean-Charles, he's an opportunist if a lot of people don't trust them. But that does not mean that there actually isn't a lot of protests. There are thousands of people in the street. Moligaf was on the street earlier in the month. They're, they're, they're on the street um, today. And, and they're all protesting in front of Ariel Henry's uh, 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 house, which is how you ended up having the police shoot into the, 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 the crowd, killing one person. And they're all called in Lavala, Aristide's old party. They're, they're calling for a mass mobilization on September 11th. So there is, people are suffering. People are, you know, are, are, are tired. They can't, they can't eat. Um, gas prices are out of control. And then you have this puppet government that's being put in place and, and basically to, 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 to quell, to stop any kind of move towards democracy, because there, there are Haitian solutions to Haitian problems, but we're not allowed, Haitian people are not allowed to put them in place because this public government is being told not to deal with them. And so we have to, we, we have to remember that, uh, about that, uh, we have to remember that's going on. And I also want to point quickly that if you remember, there's a petrical, you know, Haitians have been protesting for a long time, but under, under Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, that gave us all these petrochemical refunds, especially after the earthquake, that really came to help Haiti lower prices for fuel and so on and so forth. The U.S. was so adamantly against the petrochemical program that it forced the, uh, the PHDK government that came in to actually shut it down. And so there, there are possibilities. Venezuela is always there to support Haiti. There's poss- Cuba has always helped Haiti. There are possibilities to do something different. The U.S. refuses because they want to keep Haiti under its thumb because they need they need that control over that area in the Caribbean. And that's really what's happening. And so then it shows up as like complete chaos and so on and so forth. But it's a really controlled chaos and, and, and really fomented by, by the U.S. in particular in the core group. Department of Homeland Security Agency Immigration and Customs Enforcement knows that for many immigrants facing deportation, being sent to Haiti means ending up in an illegal, indefinite imprisonment in squalid conditions, yet the Biden administration refuses to halt deportations to Haiti, even as the country faces a humanitarian crisis and state failure. Your thoughts? Well, Yes. I mean, so let's let's talk about the difference. Right. Remember in September, late September, where there are the pictures that would look like Texas Rangers were beating um, um, Haitian asylum seekers at the border um, on while they were on horses. And there was all this outrage. Right. By the Democrats (laughs) in particular. Right. Ever since then, Biden has been deporting Haitians every week that we are now at more than 30,000 Haitians have been deported since those pictures showed up in, 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 in mid-September. So that tells you exactly, you know, the, 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 the double 
what was it, the two-faced nature of the Biden administration, and also the racism when it comes to U.S. immigration policy. Because look at what, what do we do with Ukraine, right? Ukrainians get to come in, right? They were walking up you know, with their suitcases through the U.S.-Mexico border. We opened up, the U.S. opened up the space for 100,000 Ukrainians. At the same time that it's creating all kinds of wreaking havoc in Haiti, but it's also sending Haitians back to the havoc that the U.S. has created. And to me, there's nothing more deplorable than the Democratic um, um, treatment, all the presidents in particular. But Biden has been worse in terms of deportations than any president in um, U.S. president ever. And I think we should all be outraged because what's happening in Haiti is directly because of the U.S. actions in Haiti. And so these deportations are really, uh, are really a, a terrible, terrible, terrible consequence of what the U.S. continues to do to Haiti. And it completely disregards for black life, right? I mean, the way that, you know, um, the, the U.S. government treats these Haitian people is as if they're not human beings. And we have to remember, we have to really always remember that. That, that they treat Haitians as if they're less than human. And, and we should all be outraged by that. Thank you. Dr. Pierre, Dr. Jamima Pierre is an associate professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Ukrainian Nazis maintain a website to identify and apparently assassinate perceived enemies. Also, we will discuss the state of military affairs in Ukraine and the Iran nuclear deal negotiations. Joining us to discuss these articles, we have Mark Sloboda. Mark is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. In a very good website called The Saker, Faina Savinkova writes, It is impossible for such a site to exist and its owners are not responsible for their actions. Journalist Daria Dugina was killed in Russia on Saturday night. I would hardly have known who she was if my friends hadn't told me that she and her father, Alexander Dugin, were included on the Mirotvets website and everyone knew their details. Mark Sloboda, you know, I keep hearing about this website and it sounds like it's almost like a mafia hit list. What do we need to know? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the the Meritworth's uh, list was comprised by, quote, former um, Ukrainian uh, security service personnel and uh, obviously no small number of uh, the neo-Nazis out of uh, the various far-right battalions after 2014. It is a official list of enemies of the Kiev regime. Um, and it is long uh, and inclusive. Um, primarily, it include it is of journalists, um, and it includes their names, their personal information, their addresses, con- you know, uh, contact information, and the, uh, a description of their crimes uh, uh, against Ukraine or against the regime in Kiev. Anyway, it includes such luminaries um, as. Um, Silvio Berlusconi, 
uh, former uh, German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, Henry Kissinger, um, uh, the American uh, preeminent realist IR scholar, John Mearsheimer, Roger Waters from Pink Floyd, um, and a, a, a number of individuals, of Ukrainian individuals who were placed on that list, uh, including the Ukrainian journalist uh, who was critical of the Kiev regime, Oleg Bozina, um, and also a um, former uh, parliamentarian, a former um, RADA member of uh, Ukraine um, who um, uh, did not approve of the um, Maidan putsch, uh, Oleg uh, Katashnikov, uh, were both assassinated. Uh, now we have seen Daria Dugina, uh, who was also on that list, assassinated. This website, I mean, even according to its Wikipedia entry, it is acknowledged, it's regularly acknowledged, even in the Ukrainian press, that the site is overseen uh, by the Ukrainian Secret Service, the SBU. It is used as an informal uh, checklist uh, for people entering, leaving the country. Uh, it has led to the arrest of over a thousand people, and that was already a couple of years ago. Uh, no, no word on exactly what has happened to all of those people, and it was promoted by the the former uh, uh, Ministry of Internal uh, Affairs um, of the Kiev regime, um, and it has been promoted uh, by you know the current. Uh, haulers, uh, holders of, of that office as well. So um, it is something that you're right, it should not exist. I mean, this is a list of people that are, are on that list to be killed. Um, and several of them have been. Um, and, um, you know, there have been faint calls from, you know, the normal Western international human rights organization for it to be shut down. Uh, but they still, the Western governments keep, you know, um, not minding its existence very much and keep shoveling arms and money at the regime, which they call, uh, you know, some kind of liberal democratic paragon, um, you know, despite its continued existence uh, with uh, apparent impunity. In fact, Mark, that that was my my very next question to you is you're saying that this is supported by the Ukrainian SS, or I'm sorry, Ukrainian Secret Service. Freudian yeah, Freudian slip there. <laughs> and and <laughs> with with the backing of the United States, and and this is a point that Scott Ritter made. And in fact, Scott Ritter wrote, wrote an open letter to Chuck Schumer and uh, his other congressional representatives, saying, "How can the how can the United States back uh, an an entity such as this that?" basically circumvents the United States Constitution while using uh, American taxpayer dollars to do so. That's extremely easy to answer because <laughs> proxy against Russia. I mean, <laughs> that's I, certainly uh, American values do not trump their geopolitical interests. And, uh, you know, the regime in Kiev uh, is of geopolitical interest to them in what they see as countering, containing, fighting, regime changing Russia. Um, so, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you can't. Uh, 
what, bake a cake without breaking a few eggs, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Yeah. Well, there's um, several thousand, there's several thousand people uh, whose eggs have been broken, whether uh, arrested or assassinated uh, by this list. But, you know, that's all what it, that it goes to make the cake, right? A document detailing possible international security guarantees for Ukraine may be ready by the end of this month. Andrei Yermak, President Vladimir Zelensky's chief of staff, revealed on Monday, apparently, they're putting together a Ukraine security proposal. And the first thing I thought is, is there going to be a Ukraine to have a security proposal? They don't even, these people are living in a dream world. Uh, Mark Sabota, your thoughts? Yeah, this is really pretty hilarious. I I I thought it was actually a joke uh, when I I first heard about it. There there I mean I I guess this is a wish list and considering that uh, you know um s- certainly the Russian foreign minister Sergey Lavrov uh, at the end of last month made clear now that the Russian uh, goal in Ukraine has been um uh, shall we say advanced because of the flood of Western uh, weapons into the country and the, the you know crimes that the regime has committed, and then they're now focused on regime change. So maybe it's a bit premature to be offering security guarantees of something that you obviously can't provide now, um, and um, uh, you know that may not exist. Certainly not in its current form within you know a year or two, you know, a couple years down the road. So, um, you know, I, that's nice, I guess, you know, uh, you know, more power to you for your, your imagination <laughs> and your creativity. Um, we, we, you know, we appreciate you reaching for the stars. <laughs> uh, Andre Yermak, uh, Zelensky's chief of staff says Kiev needs legally binding guarantees from its partners for weapons deliveries, the exchange of intelligence, and the support of its defense and economy. That, <laughs> that legally binding guarantees, what, what, is, what is Ukraine offering to as, as the other side of, of, of these guarantees? I mean, what does Ukraine offer these folks? I think that's pretty obvious. Um, a, a cannon fodder to kill Russians um, and a testing ground for uh, Western weapons that they want to try out before they try to sell it to countries that actually, uh, you know, can afford it. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's that that is what they are offering. Of course, no country is going to give legal guarantees to Ukraine uh, at this point because they've already shoveled so many billions of dollars of arms uh, and and taxpayers' money into you know this black hole with the knowledge that up to seventy percent of it has just disappeared, never even reached the front line, uh, you know disappeared into the you know corruption black hole. Um, it's um, eh, countries are are certainly not going to prov- countries are very loath to provide legal guarantees to ev- anything. Uh, much less to the Kiev regime in this situation. But, you know, it, it's something that they go through the motions for PR values for. Um, most European countries have already run out of arms to supply the Kiev regime with. Uh, we've heard that from the major European powers, and there has been no new promises uh, from the six major uh, EU powers uh, since the end of July. And it's been slowing down since April, as a matter of fact. So um, maybe they want to keep 
putting U.S. taxpayers uh, uh, footing the bill for this. But um, I don't think that Joe Biden would actually sign anything like that. Not that it would matter if he did. And, and really quickly, Garland, uh, Dmitry Medvedev commented saying that any guarantees for Ukraine could only be provided by Russia. And Kiev has given up that chance. To me, that statement speaks volumes as it relates to the, the Russian mindset. Oh, absolutely. And there's yeah. two, two quick things. Number one, where would these legal guarantees be adjudicated in the event that Ukraine felt they weren't being kept? I mean, that's the oh, we got legal. And where are you going to sue them? You know, it's absurd. Well, it's pretty. That's also pretty easy. Obviously, if you break the agreement, your name gets put on the board. Oh, yeah, yeah, you get assassinated. Yeah, exactly. Well, how about this? Speaking of that, the uh, fighting in Ukraine continues with recent Russian offenses launched on all fronts in the north. The slow move to Kharkov continues. The Russian forces in the south move towards the Mykolaiv. There's a lot going on. And I understand that the uh, Ukrainians, again, are taking massive losses. Mark Sloboda. What's up? Yeah, I mean, didn't you you didn't mention the uh, the Kiev regime's great southern offensive on that list? Yeah, I didn't notice it. Yeah, that's because it actually <laughs> went in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's because Russia made advance in two directions in the south, uh, including towards Nikolaev. The much ballyhooed um, uh, southern offensive has never it never appeared. Uh, you know, Russia continues their their slow grinding through Kiev regime fortifications at incredible damage. Um, It's brutal. It's terrible to watch in the daily news uh, that I'm looking through uh, from the military channels on Telegram and so forth. The the Russian Tulse 1A, um, uh, it's also called the Sunburst. It is a thermobaric weapon. Uh, It's called a heavy flamethrower, but – it's a lot more awful than that. Um, and it's regularly being used on these fortifications and trenches now. And it's not something that you would wish really even on your enemies, to be to be fair. It's be- receiving heavy use um, uh, in uh, fortified areas when they're not adjacent to, you know, any urban uh, settlements. And it is doing incredible damage. In terms of Natalia, is it how you pronounce her last name? Volvok? Volvk. Volk. Volk. In, in terms of her, and there's a Moon of, Moon of Alabama piece saying that she and her brother are both in Ukraine right now, and will, but will probably flee elsewhere. Is there any place that she can go for any prolonged period of time? Or do you think that the long arm of the law will eventually catch up with her? Yeah. Um, so, my understanding, uh, she is fleeing with her daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, who she actually brought with her, apparently, to participate in the assassination. Because what kind of mother doesn't risk their own daughter to to uh, terrorist bomb someone else's daughter? I mean, that oh, – oh, I know the answer to that. Someone who is an, an Azov neo-Nazi. <laughs> um, yeah, 
actually Wolfk is the name of her ex-husband who went the other way and uh, they split up several years ago. But he was actually put on the Miratvorets list because he helped arrange the referendums in Donbass. Uh, and it kind of shows the split in Ukrainian society is in, in miniature uh, in this dysfunctional family, uh, quite obviously. Uh, but she actually was reported today uh, having fled uh, from, she originally got to Estonia and apparently she moved on to Austria uh, where she was spotted by local people who recognized her from uh, the the headlines from the, the Russian press and had rented a hotel room in Vienna for one night. Uh, she was accompanied by her daughter and one other uh, currently unidentified, at least publicly, woman. But obviously she is being monitored heavily. Um, and of course, the ideal goal is uh, to get her uh, to face uh, legal justice uh, for uh, the, the the murder of uh, Daria Dugana to find out if she had any accomplices, what role. Did she actually push the button, place the explosive, or was she just doing surveillance? for a team it that, that these things aren't known publicly yet at least uh, but you know there's there's always the possibility if she keeps running and escapes I mean it's again awful to say but you know what happened to Trotsky right yeah we've been mm. talking with Mark Sloboda he's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst thanks a lot Mark always a pleasure to have you on you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Quote, unquote, whistleblower complains that Twitter is extremely lax in their security measures. Also, a spy school in London is training social media managers. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Steve Poikinen, who is the national organizer for the Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Good to be here. And Steve is one of my brethren on Rockfin. Um, he has a show. He has a number of shows. Tell me about your shows on Rockfin, Steve Porkinen. Well, we currently have the number one morning show on the platform, AM Wake Up, and that's uh, co-hosted by my good friend uh, Pasta Jardula, who also has a show called The Convo Couch, and I have a show called Slow News Day. The morning shows five days a week, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. Pacific, and the uh, the other slow news day is every Sunday at 10 a.m., um, and we do awesome things. Oh, that's wonderful, wonderful. Rockfin is R-O-K-F-I-N dot com. All right. Twitter executives deceived federal regulators and the company's own board of directors about extreme, extreme, egregious deficiencies in its defenses against hackers, as well as meager efforts to fight spam, according to an explosive whistleblower complaint from its former security chief. This is in The Washington Post. You know, Steve, I'll put it to you like this. Every time I hear a whistleblower saying, yes, sir, a social media giant needs to crack down on security, I'm suspicious. Steve Oikinen. I, I tend to agree with you, my friend, and here's why. We, they blame Russia or China. One of the cases here, they blame India. 
for placing one of their agents in to take advantage of lack of security. There is never a, an instant of reflection that uh, the United States government may have taken advantage of the same lack of security, may have even encouraged uh, misappropriation of that lack of security, nor is there really any admission that uh, <laughs> that what was being done was effective. But there's also the part where they kind of let it slip into the article that the guy that they hired was the guy who hacked Twitter in 2019, 2020. And so they brought him on because he was the one who originally exposed the, the weaknesses. Now, gentlemen, this is one of the most common tactics that the FBI has employed over the years. This is happening on an international scale, but, but it does seem to be a very timely release right before election season, right as we're having all these new rollouts of what mis and disinformation is going to be. It's also interesting to me, the things that they're arguing over. They're not, they don't seem to be arguing, at least in terms of these two Washington Post pieces, they don't seem to be fighting over the validity of information. They don't seem to be fighting over whether or not people are who they say they are and are they actually producing substantive content. This is over spam. This is over a lot, you know, the things that we really want them to do are the things that they are the most reluctant to do because they are more they are focused more on marketing and advertising and being an agent for the for the government than they are about actually being a substantive viable platform where people can go and rely on the information that they're getting. Well, yeah, they would love nothing more than to create a dead internet scenario where Twitter is just an echo chamber of repeated narrative content filled with bots that support that content and then advertisement for whatever product you just said out loud or thought about 20 seconds ago that is now showing up in the form of an advertisement uh, on, on your newsfeed. They're, the reason that they don't really care about the spying is that it justifies their own and it justifies their own counter spying and counterterrorism programs. Well, look, we've obviously got to have a staff of people in this warehouse over here that are constantly surveilling the entire internet period into the sentence because if we don't, we're just allowing these people to run rampant over our stuff. And, you know, as hard as we try, we just can't keep them out of these platforms. So we've got to make sure that we've amassed a, a counterattack, if not asymmetrical superiority over the digital space. And that's ultimately what this is about, is that asymmetrical superiority. This whistleblower, I mean, if you look at his pedigree, he's very trustworthy. Certainly, he's always fought back against the system. Let me just give you a little brief history of this whistleblower, Peter Zatko. In 2010, he accepted a position as a program manager at DARPA, where he oversaw cybersecurity research. In 2013, he went to work for Google in their Advanced Technology and Projects Division. And in 2020, he was hired as the head of security at Twitter. And he's received the Secretary of Defense's Exceptional Civilian Service Award. Now, that's my kind of whistleblower, Steve. 
Well, yeah, and, and again, I do believe in one of the articles they let it slip that he was the guy who exposed Twitter's vulnerabilities in the first place, thus allowing him the position ahead of security. So you have someone who would like launch their career with the DOD's, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, tech center, <laughs> the people who who claim to have created the internet in the first place, right? That that's where he started, and then just goes from spook position to spook position, ultimately becoming a quote unquote hacker. Now, the, I I understand that we're in strange times, and I understand that Hillary Clinton was like giving anonymous credit for the uh, the uprising in Egypt, and, and the on behalf of the State Department was giving anonymous marching orders to attack Russia on behalf of the State Department. Um, but when you're getting awards for civilian service for exposing flaws in particular systems, it's so that they can use those to clamp down on us. How one spook-run London College Department is training the world's social media managers, staffed by NATO military officers and former government ministers and notorious for training the West top spies, the Department of War Studies at King's College London is also providing a workforce for many of the largest social media companies. This includes Facebook, TikTok, Google, and Twitter. This is Alan McLeod at Mint Press. Your thoughts, Steve? Man, Alan McLeod should be winning awards and be on every news station talking about them for the last year or so that they've been doing these. He's been doing these reports. He, he's just done phenomenal work again. And what we see again is that there's not just a a relationship between uh, intelligence agencies, the the farming network of academia, and then narrative control on social media uh, and in journalism and, and in political leadership, but it's a revolving door, and it just it it's a well, I mean, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of people who are recruited because they're going to be able to think like you want them to and follow the orders the way that they need to be followed without question, but who are also smart enough and creative enough to figure out new ways to control the narrative and screw people out of finding out what is really going on in the world they live in. You know, or the other thing I think, Steve, is it, 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 we're seeing something, if you're paying any attention, that's very clear. And that is, you know, when Ukraine, the Ukraine uh, military operation started, there was this discussion of an info war, right? But if there's a war, you got to be at war with someone. The implication was there was an information war against Russia. But I don't believe that to be the case. The information war seems to be directed against the people of the West, and in particularly against those who would dissent from the prevailing narrative and those who would push back or even question that narrative, particularly those who provide empirical evidence and data. That, you know, there's an info war, but it ain't against Russia. It's against people like Steve Porkin and Steve. Well, it is. And, and we all have colleagues that have been put on a kill list by the Ukrainian government for their reporting. Just over, uh, I believe, last month, there was a State Department roundtable held uh, in Ukraine with a number of uh, security agencies and NGOs where it was suggested 
that people who disseminate what these particular people, the Ukrainian government, the CIA, the U.S. government, the U.K. government, MI6, deem misinformation should be viewed as information terrorists and tried for war crimes. Disinformation they are advocating to become policy should be viewed as a war crime. So that's just going to overlap into any other avenue that falls under the umbrella of national security or the national interest. And we are all going to potentially become information terrorists. Won't that sound cool on the CV in the FEMA camp? <laughs> Set in an imposing building near the banks of the River Thames in central London, the Department of War Studies is at the heart of the British establishment. Current staff includes former Secretary General of NATO, former UK Minister of Defense, and a host of other military officers. That sounds to me like the lineup on CNN and the lineup <laughs> on MSNBC. So not only is this happening at Department of War Studies in London, this is happening every day on mainstream television. Well, it is. And the fact that, that a place, and they just use King's College, for, for example, that's where they've got the information from. But I guarantee you there's pilot programs throughout established universities all over the West. Uh, is that it is? It's that perpetual mill of groupthink and that perpetual mill of we are right because we have we are products of this fine institution that has given us so many great people, such as list goes on of people who have all given themselves awards for how good they are at propaganda and how good they are at manipulation. It, it is, um, oh, I mean, it it's. Basically, like the, what everybody could think or imagine skull and bones could be in a conspiratorial fashion. This is that practiced out in real time where you have people who are openly recruited for their abilities to control the outcome uh, of future events. That's not conspiracy. That's academic policy. Yeah, one of, one of the things I found particularly interesting was the website Bellingcat that, you know, a lot of their people have gone through this uh, spook college in, in London. And uh, a couple weeks ago, or rather a couple months ago, 60 Minutes had this, you know, special on Ukraine and they had this Elliot Higgins guy from Bellingcat. And they didn't they didn't happen to mention that it's funded by the UK government or the US government. It was just like independent fact checkers out there giving us reality. Boy, they sure are nice to us. Uh, we've been talking with Steve Porkin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Over 50 Israeli organizations are blasting baseless attacks on Palestinian NGOs. Also, a CIA report finds no basis for the Israeli claim that Palestinian, in Palestinian NGOs are terrorist groups. Joining us now to discuss this and other stories, we have Robert Fantina. He's a journalist, Palestine activist, and author. Robert, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. 
And Robert, you've got a recent book out. What's the name, what's the name of your latest book and where can people find it? Uh, the latest book is Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. And it's available on Amazon or wherever people buy their books. Miko Peled, Mint Press News. So you can find it there. And the article is Israel Blames Its Victims for the Violence It Causes. The situation in Palestine can be summed up as follows. Rampant settler violence and intimidation, state-sponsored racism and violence, modern comfortable housing and living conditions for Jews only while Palestinians are denied basic services, killing of Palestinians across the board, activists, journalists, fighters, children, and citizens of Israel. Palestinian organizations, even ones that are recognized internationally, have no protection and are subject to closure, arrest, and confiscation of their property. Yeah, that sums things up pretty clearly. Robert Fantina. Yes, it does. That's the situation in uh, in Palestine and for the Palestinians. Uh, this is apartheid. This is this is a summary of what, what apartheid means. Uh, separate laws, separate standards, separate rights for uh, different uh, groups. The Israelis have all the rights that the uh, nation, I'll call it that, of Israel provides. A Palestinian gets none of them, even though they live in the same geographical area within the same borders. This is the, the, the passage you just read summarizes the suffering of the Palestinians at the hands of the Israelis. And to that point, Miko writes, nowhere in Palestine can Palestinians expect to be safe or to enjoy equality, justice, or peace of mind. And that is what a government, That's a, those are some of the fundamental elements that a government is supposed to provide. The first thing that a government is supposed to provide is safety for, for its citizens. Absolutely. Uh, citizens of any country uh, have uh, an expectation, a, a legitimate explanation, ex- expectation that the government of that country will do what it needs to keep them safe. Look at the United States with all the billions and billions of dollars it spends on so-called defense, uh, allegedly to keep the U.S. safe. Look at all the money it gives to Israel to uh, allegedly keep that nation safe. And what do the Palestinians get? Nothing in the way of uh, military support, uh, in the way of support of the United Nations uh, from from either of those two countries, the United States or Israel. Uh, safety is not a concern that Israel and the United States have for the Palestinians because they don't care if the Palestinians are safe or not. You know, I've always thought this. Let me get your thoughts on this, Robert. You know, we hear about Israel being a democracy and this bastion of democracy in the Middle East amongst all these other countries, you know, that are monarchies, etc. But recognizing Israel as a democracy kind of by its very nature, that recognition doesn't recognize Palestinians as humans, because if it's a democracy, then there's got to be either one of two things. Either Palestinians don't exist. And if they do exist, they can't be humans because in a, in a democracy, in a, as we understand the so-called liberal democracy, all humans have the same expectations of rights. Well, they can't vote. They don't have laws to protect them the same. So to me, the, the argument that Israel is a democracy in itself completely dehumanizes Palestinians. Well, and Garland, if I could, if I could add to that point, because that's, that's a great point, the hypocrisy also is— Israel is a democracy in a Jewish state. Mm-hmm. You can't have <laughs> democracy in a Jewish state for non-Jews. 
That goes along with the United States backs the one China policy and sends Nancy Pelosi into Taiwan. It also backs the whole farce of the rules-based order. Th those are all colonial fictions, imperialist fictions. They are, they are indeed. And uh, we have to remember that just a few years ago, Israel passed what's called the nation-state law, which clearly, clearly states and makes legal within the context of Israel that Israel is the nation-state of the Jewish people and only the Jewish people. That right there is apartheid. That right there negates the existence of the Palestinians. As you said, either they exist and are less than human or they don't exist. Well, we know they exist because Israel is always killing them. Uh, but Israel, the Israeli government believes them to be lesser than, than Jews, lesser than Israelis, and therefore not worthy of any rights whatsoever. Now, do they have any kind of legal verbiage designation or anything like that, that, you know, do they have something that say, other than that that says Palestinians fit into this group or some legal group? We see the results of it when they say, you know, we can arbitrarily detain, you know, lock them up with, you know, with no due process for, you know, and no charges. Is there any kind of thing in writing anywhere and, or do they just do it and not put it in writing to pretend that everything's fair? Uh, what's, what's in writing is a nation-state law. When, when that law says that the, uh, Israel is the, the home of Jews only, then everybody else is subject to whatever treatment uh, the, the Israeli government chooses to give them. So while it may not be written that uh, Palestinians can be killed at random and on a whim, that is, that is the effect of not only nation state law, it's been going on for, for generations, certainly. But that's the effect of having an apartheid regime and having a regime that practices genocide on an ongoing basis. There's a piece in Common Dreams, more than 50 Israeli organizations blast baseless attacks on Palestinian NGOs. More than 50 Israel-based civil society organizations yesterday expressed solidarity with the Palestinian nonprofits that have been subjected to an ongoing legal and physical assault from the Israeli apartheid regime. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, they can, they can fall into the trap of Hamas being a terrorist organization or the PLO being a terrorist organization, but you have civil society organizations, relief organizations, aid organizations that are merely just trying to see to it that medicine is delivered. People have potable water. And even though many of those organizations are considered to be terrorists. Yes, because anyone, any organization that assists the Palestinians in achieving basic, most basic human rights, as you said, water that they can drink, protection of children from, uh, from arrest and, and execution. These, uh, these organizations are seen by Israel as an existential threat because their goal is the extermination of all uh, Palestinians. They can't simply just bomb them all out of existence because hopefully the world would object to that. But they can do it on a, on a uh, kind of a piecemeal basis, which is what they're doing. And by by outlawing these uh, uh, these civil societies, these society organizations, they are taking from the Palestinians the few 
the few organizations that provide them with any support and assistance. This is not only does it remove these rights, it's very demoralizing for the people of Palestine. What can they do? The BDS movement has been condemned, even though it's peaceful. Uh, when they have used violent uh, methods, which are allowable under international law by an occupied uh, nation, they are condemned. So peaceful uh, resistance is condemned. Violent resistance is condemned. What, what does the world want from the Palestinians? Well, and if you recall, you know, a few years ago, they were saying the Palestinians need a Palestinian Gandhi and, you know, they need to be more peaceful, whatever. And they had these, uh, I think it was every Friday, they had these protests and they were very, very peaceful protests. And the Israelis were just shooting them, a peaceful protest, no violence whatsoever, shooting people in the leg all over the place, shooting people and killing them. And it kind of you know, expose the lie that there's something that the Palestinians can do or there's a different method they can use that will somehow cause the Israelis to soften their hearts, that it's their, it's the Palestinians' fault because of the way they're asking or protesting for equality. Robert? That's a narrative that Israel wants to, to maintain, and it's, it's just simply not, not taking anymore. But as you mentioned, uh, people say that uh, Palestine needs a, a dynamic leader, a Gandhi, something. But every time someone comes forward as a leader, starts to emerge as a leader, Israel either assassinates them or arrests them. So that's that, and that is certainly uh, planned. That's not not accidental. They they want to Israel wants to prevent Palestine from having the leadership that it needs. And the idea that uh, the 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 Red Return March you referred to uh, that that took place for se- on several Fridays a few years ago. Uh, one medic was assassinated by, uh, by Israeli forces, and they said, oh, it was an accident and it wasn't planned and all this. Even the New York Times, which is a very pro-Israel uh, paper, did an in-depth and very, a very detailed investigation of that, that assassination, uh, looking at photos and videos and talking to eyewitnesses and looking at uh, forensic evidence. And they said there was no way this was an accident. This was a planned and targeted assassination. And yet, what did the world do? Nothing. Following along to that point, if you look at the Palestine Liberation Organization, that's a, that's a political organization. When you look at Hamas, Hamas is a defense organization. And what seems to be happening now is people are losing or have lost faith in the PLO because politically nothing is getting accomplished. And so now, as I see it, you've got Hamas gaining traction because politically nothing can get accomplished. Yes, and politically, uh, until uh, Mahmoud Abbas is out of office and Fatah is replaced, nothing will happen. Uh, Fatah is simply a a tool of, of Israel. Hamas, is seen as doing something to help the Palestinian people when the PLO is not seen in that, in that regard. So why should the people of Palestine support an organization that doesn't help them when there's an option of supporting one that does? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget the, um, you can probably find it on YouTube if it hasn't been deleted, a recording of Hillary Clinton saying, if we were going to allow a vote in uh, elections in Palestine, in Palestinian territories, we should have ensured that we could control the outcome. Uh, 30 seconds. 
Yes, that, that may be no longer available on YouTube, but it's available in a couple of my books. Yes, who is the United States to allow elections anywhere, and who is the United States to ensure a certain outcome? Isn't the U.S. government currently uh, just indignant about any, any uh, influence that Russia may have had on the previous election or on, on a future election? Oh, yes, that's, that's wrong, that's evil, that's terrible, it threatens U- U.S. democracy, but it's okay for U.S. to do the same thing to the Palestinians. Yes, that's the old rules-based order. And she exercises the exact same plan when it came to uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The current crop of uh, ideologues leading the U.S. empire and its assistance is creating a dynamic in which a new world order must be shaped by leaders from Eurasia and the global south. Joining us to discuss this important story, we have Professor Nikolai Petro, professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine. Professor Petro, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Nice to be with you. You know, it may sound a little bit over the top what I'm saying, but when I, when I look at uh, Liz Truss and I look at um, and I look at Joe Biden and people like that, I think there has to be we 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 have to have in this world some more competent leaders. Russian President Vladimir Putin's August 16 speech to foreign dignitaries at the Moscow Conference on International Security, an annual affair that Russia has hosted for the past decade, articulates a new idea of our world, a veritable Weltanschauung of great consequence. Putin said. That's from Patrick Lawrence, Putin and the emergency or, uh, Emerging Order in uh, ConsortiumNews.com. Professor Nikolai Petro, your thoughts? I think uh, President Putin has uh, put his finger on uh, the issue of the day. Uh, there are a number of international leaders in the West, most notably German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who agrees in principle um, when he says things like uh, we are at a turning point in time right now. It's just that um, he and other Western leaders don't like the direction in which uh, he uh, suspects these trends are going. That's the debate. Um, Will the future world order uh, which is uh, which Putin and President Xi and a number of other international leaders outside the West are trying to create, will it actually be a better world order than the current one? And he says the situation in the world is changing dramatically and the outlines of a multipolar world order are taking shape. An increasing number of countries and peoples are choosing a path of free and sovereign development based on their own distinct identity, traditions, and values. You know, when I listen to his speeches, when I listen to President Xi, they're very, very clear, but at least in terms of the West, a lot of what they're articulating is falling upon deaf ears. And when you try to talk to people here, All they have is the narrative from mainstream media 
they don't listen to what these presidents are actually saying, and the message just doesn't get through. Well, that's the purpose of the censorship <laughs> of, uh, of voices from those countries. It's, it's not that it's impossible, but it takes that extra effort to find those voices, um, uh, which are well worth uh, listening to. I, uh, I'll be teaching both Russian foreign policy and IR theory this semester uh, with a focus on Ukraine. And one of the first things I have to do is, is really try to expand their, the student's base of knowledge, because otherwise we simply have no, no common context. Uh, for discussing things, if you if you just look at one side of the equation, the the Western side, let me throw a little bit of a, um, a challenge to the, uh, Putin's argument, and, and he's not alone in this. Uh, the the alternative view uh, of a of a um, Eurasian world, let's call it a Eurasian world order. Um, I can understand why a leader currently in office in the West or in any number of countries would tend to be reluctant to embrace uh, a new world order that is just forming, because it's a question of a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. In other words, what we got may not be perfect. We have, yes, U.S. hegemony. Uh, the domination of the international monetary system by the United States, and uh, maybe not all voices get through or are heard, but it's worked more or less for 50, 60 years. Do you really want to throw all of that to the wind and expect a better result to come forth? And so Putin, I think, to, to on, he's sort of playing it up to be more than it is right now, this Eurasian world order, because there's a lot of elements to this world order that are not in place right now. There is no global monetary alternative to the dollar. There is no reserve currency. There are a lot of the interconnecting pieces of what today the uh, countries in the West refer to as uh, the rules-based order. They're not yet in place. And uh, I think... Uh, We'll just have to see whether uh, the structures that uh, Putin and Xi and others say they will create will actually work. And if they do work, I think they will tend to be more attractive. But this is a matter of years, if not decades. Let me put two things together to, to, to throw at you. In Putin's speech, he said this, the United States and its vassals grossly interfere in the eternal affairs of sovereign states by staging provocations, organizing coups, or inciting civil wars. And certainly we can go to Africa, you know, Kwame Nkrumah, Thomas Sankara, Patrice Lumumba, you know, uh, South America, on and on and on. And here's Most what I have— recently Pakistan. Exactly. So here's what I have to throw at you. 
if you are in Ghana or the Congo or Venezuela, right, it's like Malcolm X's famous speech where he says, if somebody goes to the house slaves and says, let's run away, the house slaves say, yeah, you know, it ain't all that bad. It ain't perfect. But, you know, we can we, we got food and we got a roof over our head. If somebody goes to the field slaves, the field slave says, we're hungry. We work from dusk to dusk and we're beaten every day. Any place is better than here. So if you look at the people that were at the conference, the, the Global South people, if you look at the history and how hideously catastrophic this particular world order has worked out for them, in speaking to the Global South, I see them as the field slaves that would say, you're asking me to run away? Any place is better than here. Your thoughts, Professor Petro. And Professor Petro, before you respond, Garden, let, let me put it in a, in, in a more current context, Venezuela is suing Britain for $8 billion that Britain has seized their gold. Russia is trying to get their uh, sovereign wealth fund uh, released. The United States has seized Iranian assets. Uh, Afghanistan's assets. Afghanistan's assets. Joe Biden just came out two days ago and said, no, we're not giving you your money back. Now, some have said that's a negotiating ploy, but still, they don't have their money. So from the perspective of the sanctioned versus the perspective of the sanctioner. The net effect of sanctions is indeed the crumbling, the erosion of the current international system, because people who anticipate investing in the international order will think twice about doing so under the current terms. And we'll look for terms that are less politically motivated elsewhere. But here's the question. What about the money that's already invested? Um, so far, the uh, verdicts of courts have not been impartial. But... The problem is uh, you either work within the system as it is, or you give up on that system. It took a long time, 30 years, 20 years under Putin, for Russia to essentially, it seems now, give up on that system. I read Putin's speech to be saying, we tried every way possible to fit into the international order, but that international order is closed to us. So now we have to create a new one. But in the but the process of creating a new one and of bringing other country on board to that system is laborious, expensive, and will be fought tooth and nail by the existing international order. And as to the countries that that you've mentioned that are um, suffering under the current regime. The question is, I would say, not so much perhaps the countries themselves, but their leaders. And leaders can always be bribed. 
Let me ask you one other thing, too, that I think it's important. Um, India, when you look at India, because India, I think, is a very critical nation in this whole thing. The U.S. thought they had India, and I think, in reality, a lot of this is about colonialism. A lot of this is about a lot of countries looking back, saying, based on what, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. and the colonial empires have done to us over the years, we're not happy. But here's here's the thing I, I want to ask you about India. If I'm India, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wow, China is trying to become a world power, and the U.S. says, we want to go to war with you. Russia says, we want to become a world power, and the U.S. says, we want to go to war with you. We're going to accuse you of every of stealing, lying. Every, every other day, we're going to come up with a new accusation because we hate your guts, simply because you're trying to become a world power. India aspires to be a world power. If you're India, you got to know. That's the fate that awaits you. And that's why I think India sees their future as an aspiring world power must be outside of the U.S. system. Your thoughts on that? In the long term, yes. And let's not forget countries that are pretty much off our uh, intellectual radar right now, like Indonesia, Mm -hmm. which is showing uh, it's a very important country Mm -hmm. in that area of the world and uh, has potential global uh, reach as well. Um, And it is showing quite a bit of uh, independence. But the question is time frame. Mm -hmm. So in the long run, you're right. My bet would be that India understands that the current world order uh, has a, a time limit on it. But in the short run... Why not play it safe? Mm-hmm. Why not try to uh, you know, thread the needle, be friends with everybody until absolutely forced to make a choice? But some would argue that that's happening now, that, that, that they're being forced to make that choice now. Yes, but if so, I think reluctantly, because it is still in India's interest not to antagonize the wealth of the West. I don't think there's a great military threat uh, by the West to India, but it's much easier to change regimes and to undermine policies in a country through financial strangulation. Uh, And we, it's hard to know and to understand the limits of sanctions policy because it's not even acknowledged as having any limits. Let me quickly ask you this. Let's go to the continent of Africa, and you've got China proposing to bring the African Union into the G20. So if you're one of those, I guess, seven countries in in the African Union, you say, wow, do I want to follow China into the G20, or do I want to sit back and run the risk of having the United States back another coup since the U.S. has backed six coups or seven coups in the last 18 months? Like I said, if if I were actually an advisor to any of these uh, intermediary countries, I don't like the term third world, Mm -hmm. but any of these countries that are sitting on the fence, I would try to sit on the fence for as long as possible and derive maximum benefit uh, from all sides, I would want them to court me. I would not stick my head out, my neck out, I would say, and uh, because somebody's likely to chop it off. 
or shoot you off the fence. Yeah, sounds like you've been talking <laughs> yeah. to President Erdogan in Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or t- Turkey, so as, they, as they call it. Pro- professor Nikolai Petro is a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island specializing in Ukraine. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 